before we jump into this episode, this is James from Fringe Voices. I just wanted to let you know about Anchor. Uh, Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free, and they have plenty of tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. In addition, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M to get started. Thank you. Hey, Fringe Voices Show listeners. Today we have a special guest, Jamal Bowman. Jamal Bowman is a Democrat running for United States Congress in New York's 16th Congressional District. Jamal is a great guy, and we had a great and enlightening conversation about public education. Jamal is currently a middle school principal and is also a very qualified political candidate. I encourage you, no matter where you live, to support his run for Congress, and I have links in the show notes. Enjoy today's show. This will be the last one for the year of 2019, and I look forward to many more in the year 2020. Thank you. Hey, Jamal, Jake, thanks for taking the time today to join the Fringe Voices show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, James. How are you? Doing great myself. Um, So I brought you on the show today because I was very inspired by your run for Congress, especially since you're an educator, and most people may not know this, but I'm also an educator myself. Um, And I find it uh, really interesting that someone that is an educator wants to take on the system. So could you begin talking about your uh, your background, maybe just like briefly uh, your about in New York State, and then also what, what inspired you to run for United States Congress? Yeah, so uh, I'm born and raised in New York City. Um, I lived uh, on the Upper East Side uh, slash East Harlem section of Manhattan uh, for most of my life. I uh, moved to New Jersey to actually finish uh, graduating from high school. Uh, but I've been in public schools uh, my entire life, so I'm a product of public schools. I started teaching in 1999 in the South Bronx um, in one of the poorest uh, zip codes uh, in the country. Uh, we have 1,500 kids. It was a K-4 school. It was so overcrowded, uh, like many of our schools are. But regardless of all, the, all of that, the kids came in with the love and the passion uh, for learning and for each other, and the families were very involved uh, and engaged. Uh, I did that for about five or six years, and then I started, um, I worked as a dean of students at the high school for arts and technology uh, for three years. And while I was there, I experienced um, what what working in a school with metal detectors uh, felt like, uh, and it just felt incredibly draconian and oppressive, uh, and it felt like kids were just being criminalized for the simple fact of existing. Um, That frustration led to me thinking about pursuing a job as a school administrator. Uh, Part of that was writing a proposal for a new school, uh, which I did along with some parents and teachers. Um, And we opened up uh, Cornerstone Academy for Social Action Middle School in the Bronx in in, in 2009. Um, So as you know, when you work uh, for public education, uh, quite often you feel uh, oppressed by the system. Uh, because we have uh, children and families with so many needs that go beyond the walls of the school. Uh, And no matter what you try to do to meet those needs inside the school, uh, there's still so much trauma 
uh, in their lives that is very hard for them to focus on learning and thriving uh, when they're overwhelmed with food insecurities, housing insecurities, uh, lack of health care, etc. Um, so for me, uh, I, I grew sort of felt like I hit, hit the wall in terms of pushing back against that system. I've been very active as an education activist, um, you know, as part of the opt-out movement, as part of equitable funding, um, as part of uh, restorative practices, etc. Um, and this run for Congress is about trying to replicate the work we've been fortunate enough uh, to do in our school, uh, trying to replicate that uh, throughout the district and hopefully throughout the country. Yeah, it's it's very uh, inspiring because I don't think enough politicians talk about the education system. It always seems to take like a backseat to other issues, which are very important as well. But as you and I both know, the education system seems to be kind of crumbling. So I appreciate um, your run for this. And I, I you mentioned a few things. So I want to get into like the details of this proposal you had for the New Deal for education. And could you speak... Uh, like on your the the background on that, and then I have a few questions related to it. Well, yeah. So I've worked in public schools for twenty years. Um, I have a doctorate in education leadership that looks at collaboration uh, within the community school ecosystem, and I've learned so much from uh, parents and teachers and students and all of the education theory. You know, I've just learned a lot, and I've really leaned into you know, what, what specific school districts are doing, what private schools are doing, what charter schools are doing, what's happening in Finland, what's happening in Singapore. You know, I've just been sort of doggedly obsessed with trying to find the answers, quote unquote, uh, for our kids. Uh, and based on everything I've learned uh, and working in collaboration with people like Billy Easton of AQE and Nikhil Goyle, who's an education activist, uh, we put our heads together and uh, and created the the New Deal for Education, which, like the Green New Deal, is all about righting the wrongs of history and righting the wrongs of the education system. So a big part of it involves uh, quadrupling Title I funding uh, at the federal level uh, to ensure that uh, our poorest communities and poorest kids uh, get the resources that they need. Uh, as you know, uh, local property taxes is what drives the majority of education funding. So if you live in a wealthy school district, you get more funds than someone who lives in the South Bronx, for example. And that's inequitable. It's racist, it's classist, and it's unacceptable. Uh, so we're calling for the quadrupling of, of uh, Title I funds. We're also focused on early childhood in a very particular way. Uh, early childhood education and child care sort of go hand in hand, but it's important for our children and our families to receive the resources and supports they need before they enter kindergarten. Uh, unfortunately, families are, are so overwhelmed with working and trying to make ends meet and, and trying to keep their children safe uh, that they don't have the community resources to support them uh, as they give their child everything that they deserve. Um, so early childhood education is a big focus of ours as well. Um, ending um, annual standardized testing as it currently exists uh, is also a big focus. Um, multiple research studies have shown that testing students in grades three through eight uh, do, does not close the achievement gap. Uh, that is not uh, the outcomes that we have seen. And we believe a more project-based focus uh, for students to work collaboratively, creatively, 
uh, and think critically about the needs of our current economy and and how they can uh, how they can be more proactive in solving those needs uh, is a better approach. And there are many other layers to it, as you know. It's 21, 21 bullet points. Uh, restorative justice is a big one as well. Uh, making sure we're investing more in guidance counselors and social workers and teachers than we do in law enforcement. Um, centering all of it is educating the whole child and making sure we uh, deal with the social and emotional and psychological development of our students. Um, so those are just a few bullet points of the plan. Which are um, actually you picked out some really good ones. And I know you I want to focus uh, first on the restorative um, aspect that you mentioned because I know you have some experience with using meditation in your school. And as a, as a Buddhist, I do believe that there's some value in this. So I would like to hear you, your role with this and how you think that it, it could fit in, uh, or even other solutions, how they could fit into the education system. Well, I've always seen alignment between uh, mindfulness and emotional intelligence. Uh, what's what's most key here is the ability to be self-aware um, and present and socially aware. Um, as we live our lives, we, we often experience and feel a ton of different emotions. Uh, we often don't know why we are feeling those emotions. And just being present and taking a moment to breathe and center yourself can help not just deal with those emotions in that particular moment, but just work with emotions throughout your life. Um, all of us, regardless of race and class and background, we all deal with trauma uh, throughout our lives. And, and, and mindfulness and emotional intelligence is a way, a very powerful way to help uh, self-manage uh, that trauma so it doesn't boil into something, boil over into something that can be self-destructive. Um, so from the very beginning, you know, I was aware that, you know, I taught in a Title I school, uh, mostly Black and Latino students, uh, right around the corner from the housing projects. Uh, I come from housing projects, so I know the trauma that many kids face uh, day in and day out. Uh, even growing up uh, without a parent in the home or, or not having enough time with your parent because they're working so hard, etc. These are all traumatic circumstances, and some of those things manifest in schools. And I think uh, I know that implementing mindfulness within the school as part of an overall restorative justice uh, approach uh, has been beneficial to us as a school. That's great to hear. And I, I feel like uh, implementing this on an even federal level would be very important, too. Um, that is a, a key point of your proposal. And I think another part that I wanted to dive into is is the opt out of the state testing. Um, I You did talk a bit, a bit a bit about the standardized testing, but could you speak about maybe like a model or something else that could be used uh, for standardized testing? Yeah, so there are a few problems with the current with the system as it currently exists, right? So first of all, these standardized tests are created by third pro third party for profit corporations, right? They're not created by teachers. So uh, these third party uh, for profit corporations, they're designed to make a profit. So they create these tests, they sell these tests to state governments, state governments buy them, a profit is made. So that's problem number one. They're for profit, they're not created by educators. Problem number two is they've been weaponized because they've been tied to teacher evaluations. So there's no research that supports 
tying teacher evaluations to standardized test scores, that that would improve the performance of, of students. There's no research to support that, so it should have never been done. And again, teachers or nor parents were at the table to have these conversations. These conversations were happening with uh, elected officials who are in the pockets of uh, corporations. Uh, problem number three, again, as I mentioned before, there's no research to support testing kids annually in grades three through eight will close the achievement gap or make them smarter. So that's problem number three. It's not research-based. So my proposal, our proposal as part of our plan is if the state wants to take a snapshot look at how districts are doing, even though we all know how districts are doing because performance is in, in alignment with class. So we already know. But if the state wanted to take a snapshot look Take a snapshot in fourth grade, take a snatch, snapshot in seventh grade, make it a one-day uh, test, make sure it's created by teachers or education professionals. Uh, let's take a snapshot and let's see where we are. What's more important to focus on is what we call progressive pedagogies, right? So think Reggio Emilia, think Montessori, think uh, a learning environment that is both self-directed based on students' interests and needs as well as collaborative, um, so that students learn to work together with others to solve a problem. This is essential because if students go through a K-12 system where they're learning in this way, when they become adults, they'll be more likely to work in that way. And we are a country in the world that has been divided and segregated based on race and class and differences for far too long. And it's time for us to come together across race, across class, across religion, across gender, across experiences to save our planet, which is burning beneath our feet. So there's alignment between how we do public schooling and a Green New Deal. There's alignment between public school experiences and having the moral compass and compassion to understand the need for Medicare for all. This is about centering human rights and equality and justice. And the way we do schooling really contributes to how students think about and engage with the world. So focus on progressive pedagogies and teaching and learning more than we do on testing particularly when the testing is not created by teachers, when it's weaponized, and when it's used to close schools down, open up charter schools, and make a profit on the backs of kids. It's been a scheme from the very beginning, and that's why, as a public school uh, educator, we've pushed back against, against that system. And thanks for that. Um, one other uh, aspect of this proposal that I'm actually not too familiar with is the community school model. And it sounds kind of intriguing. Would you mind speaking about that model and how it applies? Yeah, so I want to start with uh, talking or, or reiterating what I said about property taxes funding schools, right? So, you know, in this district, we have incredible wealth disparities. If you live in uh, Bronxville or Larchmont or Scarsdale, uh, because your housing taxes and property taxes are so high, your schools get additional resources. So they're able to pay teachers more, pay assistants more, pay principals more, pay superintendents more. That's fine. We don't want to take resources away from them. The problem is if you're living in the projects or areas of concentrated poverty, 
you're not living there because of some bad thing you you did. You're living there because of bad government policy. You live in there because of racist government policy that redlined you into a district that forced you into a space where your schools are going to be underfunded, where it's going to be a, a lack of jobs, where you might live in the food desert, and the trauma becomes so overwhelming that people begin to hurt each other in that way. So my entire career has been uh, spent working in disenfranchised communities. So that's the lens I bring to this conversation. So when we say community schools, we're talking whole child, whole family, whole community approach. It's not enough to build up the school and make sure kids are closing the achievement gap in that school. It's about the needs of the family and the needs of the community beyond what happens in school. Because we have to right the historical wrongs of racist policy that put people in these positions to begin with. So the community school model is leadership that has school administrator, teacher, community-based leader, and parent as part of the leadership infrastructure. It's public education, working with healthcare, working with community-based organizations, working with elected officials to meet the holistic needs of individual child, family, and community. So it's like we develop together. So it's not uh, one school working in isolation. It's everyone working together in the community to meet the social, emotional, cognitive, creative, psychological needs of everyone in that community. So basically treating someone like a human being rather than uh, like a cog in a, in a machine or something. Correct. We, we have to, we, so the public education system was created at a time where the goal was to feed the industrial revolution, was to create workers who can be a cog in the machine and drive capitalism. That would have been fine if the workers were able to share power with CEOs. As we know, that's not the case. Uh, there is no shared power. CEOs are exploiting workers and, and, and making a, a considerable amount of money, considerable about a, amount of profit, and not reinvesting into the communities. Uh, this is, we're in the 21st century now, entering the 22nd century. We need a Green New Deal because we're going to right the wrongs of the New Deal and create new industry models where workers have power, where care is centered within that model, and where we're finally coming together uh, to save our planet and to work across uh, differences uh, within the human race. So, um, it's it's a it's these are bold visions. Uh, there's a lot to do, and you and I talking is a step one of many more steps to getting this done. Yes, sir. Um, I I appreciate you giving your background on uh, why you wanted to run for Congress, your inspiration for running for Congress, and then we talked briefly about um, the the different aspects of your New Deal for education. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and just uh, maybe get uh, like a little personal, but not so much and, and ask a um, different question. And what, so I named this uh, fringe voices because I, I think that some people have some radical or fringe views that uh, many other people don't share. And we've talked about some radical ideas that people don't share, but do you have another important or fringe view that you think people should know about, but don't already well, I mean, I've said this in other places, maybe people have missed it, but I think other than um, 
environment and environmental issues being the largest existential threat uh, in our country. I think the second most important that we need to deal with is white nationalism. And not just from individual hate groups on the alt-right, but the systems and structures that have been in place from the beginning of this country's history that still exists, that keep people oppressed. Um, and when we say white nationalism, not white nationalism, that's usually male-dominated. So there's sexism that's a part of that as well, right? So it's not just a racial component. There's a sexism component as well, a classism component as well, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, you know, dealing with white nationalism directly, calling it out for what it is, understanding that it's not just individual people and groups, but it's ideology and values that led to the creation of the systems uh, that we currently live within and exist within. We need to call that out for what it is because that is the adversary that we are all up against to really create the America that works for everyone. Um, that might be fringe, that might be radical, but it's honest and it's something that we need to have an honest conversation about. Um, and this is not about all white people being racist. That is not what we're saying. We're saying there's a fringe group that considers themselves white nationalists and many people who think in those terms as well that has created that have created systems and structures that oppress the massive of masses of us. Uh, that's the system we're up against, and that's what we have to come together to defeat. Yeah, and I think the key aspect that you mentioned is this is like a, a very niche group that seems to have a heavy influence on the rest of the population and doesn't share the majority of the population's views. Um, so I, I feel like it is uh, important to have a conversation about this and to bring it to the forefront. And I think um, that, you know, this current political climate, it may seem bleak, but it's also it's also allowing people it's forcing people to have this conversation. Right. So I think, yeah. uh, this is, this is why it's important too, because we're in a, we're in like this moment where we can change so many things. Well, a couple quick points on that. Number one, Trump is not the cause. He's a symptom. The corrupt system, the rigged system, the rotten system to the core gave birth to Donald Trump. So that's one. So we want to defeat him. Yes. But we also have to defeat the system because it's bigger than Donald Trump. The second thing I want to mention is there's a fringe group of white nationalists who are outwardly racist, right? Mm -hmm. But implicit bias and implicit and unconscious racism lives within the air we breathe in this country and lives within every system. So it's about all of us checking ourselves and and being self-aware and being mindful, going back to meditation and mindfulness, of how this system hurts us, helps us, benefits us, etc. Having real self-honest conversations and then having real community conversations about not just the explicit racist white supremacists like Trump, but how does the implicit bias live within the system and how does that impact all of us and how do we defeat that? Because that is more uh, damaging in many ways uh, than the explicit um, racism that's out there. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Yeah, thanks for the pushback on that, because that I think I agree with you. That's a key point. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, um, 
who who do you find inspiration in or maybe it could be a group of people or one person but on a daily basis and then who's also inspired you maybe from you know since you've been a child or something man uh i'm inspired by my wife my daughter and my kids man uh the the best thing for me is after all this stuff that i got to do every day <laughs> is coming home to to be settled with them um so they they're my inspiration uh every single day um uh, my inspiration from when i was a child was my mom uh my mom uh was a single mom worked incredibly hard to raise me and my three sisters the right way uh and she she's the most amazing human being on the planet um and she told me one day that I could be anything I wanted to be and and I believed her and I want every child to to know that they could believe anything that they want to be uh politically uh political sort of inspiration um comes from people like uh uh Bernie Sanders uh people like Maxine Waters, uh people like AOC and the squad, um uh, people like uh, Congresswoman Jayapal uh and others, anyone who's pushing back against uh a system that is inhumane uh is is a is a uh, ally of mine and someone I'm incredibly inspired by. And I'm also uh a a product of hip hop culture, so uh I'm all, I'm always often inspired by the, the brilliant artistry and, and poets uh, in hip hop, uh, not as much the not not the uh, demonstrative derogatory uh, hip hop, but like the knowledge of self, uh, consciousness, community building hip hop that I was raised on, like Karis One, Rakim, uh, Public Enemy, uh, Brand Nubian, and many others. Oh yeah, I remember the. I'm I'm from that same era, so I remember like the sound of the police and all that stuff. So yeah, it's that that actually and they still inspire me to this day too. Um, <laughs> so uh, wrapping up a little bit, um, I appreciate you again once again taking the time to come on the show and for you. expressing your views. And uh, I really think you're running a strong campaign. So um, as a as a takeaway or a call to action, how can more people uh, help your run for Congress and where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, thank you so much. So our social media handles are Jamal Bowman NY. Uh, so that's at Jamal Bowman NY. My name is spelled J-A-M-A-A-L uh, B-O-W-M-A-N-N-Y. So that's how you find us on social media. Uh, our website is bowmanforcongress.com. Uh, Bowman again, B-O-W-M-A-N-F-O-R, congress.com. And please, yeah, go to the website, check it out, share with family and friends, uh, click on the donate bu button, send us a couple of bucks, uh, every dollar matters. Uh, but what matters just as much is uh, if you're willing to volunteer, uh, that would be amazing. So, you know, click that volunteer button, uh, come knock doors with us, uh, do some phone banking with us, do some leafletting with us at the train station or somewhere, uh, and just uh, just help us uh, spread our um, campaign message to as many people as possible. Um, the polling is very strong so far. Uh, we're at 10%, only 19 points behind the incumbent uh, with nice. seven to go. So we're very close, uh, and, and this is the first time we've ever run a campaign. So the more boots on the ground uh, we get, the, the more likely we are to win this thing. So, so thank you. 
Yeah, and I look forward to uh, a future show when we're bringing you on when you're uh, in, in, inducted into the uh, the Congress. So thank you so much again. And I'll link to these links in the show notes for our listeners. Um, we appreciate your time, Jamal, and uh, have a great rest of the day and good luck. Thank you, James. Keep teaching those kids the right way. Thanks. Huh.